Hey guys, welcome back to Pucks and Pages. My name is Steven, that is my lovely wife, as always, Liberty. We're a married couple with different hobbies, and we try to bring each other into our hobbies through the latest news in both books and sports. And today is the book episode. The final one of 2020. The final book episode. And we're going to go on a two-week break after this, and then we'll be back in the new year. It's going to be very nice to have a little bit of rest and to plot out the craziness for next year for you guys. Yeah, it'll be a lot of fun. But let's get into the book news. So, Wreath Witherspoon's production company has already optioned a book that isn't out until May of next year. Which means either it's really good or they think they can make a lot of money. It's exciting. So the book is called The Last Thing He Told Me, written by Laura Dave. It is a mystery thriller about a woman looking into her husband's disappearance. So it sounds right up Reese Witherspoon's alley, given the fact that she's done both Little Fires Everywhere and Big Little Lies yeah. with her production company. Reese has always done some pretty interesting things throughout her career, not just with books, but like, yeah. Right. Her company has done some really good adaptations of books to movies, so mm. I don't mind the fact that she's getting into that field versus just acting. And the show is going to star Julia Roberts, and it will be a limited series on Apple TV+. Plus. So it's actually going to be a TV show and not a movie. I'm really sad that all these adaptations are coming on all these different subscription services. Right. Because I want to watch them all, and I can't. And it drives me absolutely up the wall. I was going to make a joke, and uh, that would put us under a microscope that I don't want to be under, so I won't. Okay. I was waving my arm back and forth while I was thinking of that joke, so you can guess from there, hopefully, what I was going to say. Nope. And... Next, we have Marvel Comics and Allegheny Health Network have collaborated to celebrate real-life healthcare heroes with a new comic. The Vitals True Nurse Stories is a comic book where each character and story stems from the experiences of real-life nurses. Okay. The project was apparently a surprise to the nurses all across that healthcare network. Mm-hmm. And was unveiled to them on Thursday. The Vitals True Nurse Stories is going to be published on December 30th. They have part of a non-issue, so a number zero, out on the Marvel website right now. And you can check their website on details where to pick up a copy for yourself or a nurse in your life. I thought it was interesting. Yeah, it's kind of cool that Marvel's doing a neat partnership for a good cause. Well, and I actually like the artwork from what I saw from the, like, pre-issue, whatever they call it. Yeah. I don't know. I think it looks interesting. I think we're definitely undervaluing healthcare workers when we have a global pandemic happening. I know that I take as many opportunities as I can whenever I have customers in that are of healthcare working varieties right now to play 20 questions with them, but then also thank them for what they're doing because by no means are you or me qualified to be treating people with COVID-19 right now. Right, no. And they're on the front lines of this thing, and I can't imagine how many healthcare workers have lost their life to this. Far too many, sadly. Yeah. Then early last week, the Game of Thrones Twitter page released a teaser for the prequel House of the Dragon, which goes into production in 2021. As long as it's not done by the idiots that ruined the last season of Game of Thrones, then I think everything should be fine. Well, the whole reason that happened is because the author hadn't published the last part of that story. So they had to come up with what they thought 
would be a decent ending and it wasn't. Yeah, the off-the-cuff ending that maybe should have been tested in some, like, groups before they released it, but... And so the prequel will take place 300 years before the events of Game of Thrones. Apparently this is based on a Targaryen history book called Fire and Blood. Targaryen? Whatever. Mm -hmm. George R.R. Martin wrote that, so hopefully they don't mess it up with throwing in some stuff that he didn't write. Yeah. But apparently fans already have theories based on the teaser. There were some drawings of a couple dragons and i guess these dragons are known about in the book and other books that they think they know which dragon is which and whatnot that's kind of cool if you're into that thing i suppose you know what's really weird is i have started that show probably about three or four times now and at a certain point like something else always kind of pops up more relevant in the world of media and it distracts me from it right and then i forget that where i was and i'm like well i better start this all over again and so i like i like the show i just don't know that i'm attached enough to be like that nerdy about it i guess i don't like the source material so game of thrones was never a thing for me i read the first book for a class in college and it's so dense but also I don't like the writing style I don't like several things about the book so I've never been tempted by the show but I would have been more interested in what was happening with that particular family so maybe the prequel would have been more for me I don't know yeah it could go either way for me i feel like prequels are always either really good or really bad and nothing in between so i think the fact that it's 300 years prior helps it not be as bad well it kind of takes you out of that current theater of the world so yeah it kind of helps the cause probably a little bit but speaking of adaptations the rapper kid cuddy has recently developed a production company called mad solar which has already optioned a book for adaptation the book being adapted is Real Life by Brandon Taylor and will star Kid Cudi as the lead. You know, he's doing a lot of things. He just released a new album this week, too. So it's really... All these people coming out with stuff during the pandemic, two albums and whatnot. No. Yeah. Well, what do you expect when you really don't have anything to do? You're not on tour. You're not doing anything. It's just kind of like now or never, I guess. Well, it makes me sense. feel lazy. That's the problem. <laughs> But Real Life was published this past February and tells the story of a queer black man studying in a mainly white PhD program. It takes place over one weekend and the story follows romantic relationships as well as complex friendships. Interesting. I think it's going to be one of those important but hard to read, hard to watch books or movies or shows, depending on what your poison is. Yeah. And then the last piece of news I'm not excited for, so this has been a really weird week of news, but despite the fact that this show has only been gone for a few years, HBO is rebooting True Blood, which ran from 2008 to 2013. I gave this show a shot at one point in the past year or so, and I watched like the first three or so episodes, and I was so turned off by it that I don't think I could ever get into a reboot i am not shocked by this as it is like cw vampires but worse um, plus it's got hbo's rating 
Yeah. So you don't have to worry about being PG-13 or whatever. No, it was a TV mature show, so it's not shocking to me that you don't enjoy it. Well, it was just unnecessary sex scenes because it's like, if it advances a plot or creates some sort of like alliance or friendship or something, I won't like it, but it's fine. Yeah. But this was just basically porn for no reason. No, it was for a reason. It's because people like it. And I know... People who are not me. <laughs> yes, I was going to say. I don't think that this one is really one for being up your alley. So I'm not shocked to hear that you don't like it that much. So True Blood, as you know, was based off of a series of vampire novels. The author is Charlene Harris. Mm-hmm. And the original series had actress Anna Paquin, who I know from... X-Men, and she starred alongside actor Stephen Moyer, who I don't think I've seen in anything else. And there is currently no word on any actor's storyline or release date. The only information that we really have is that Roberto Aguirre Sacasas will write and produce with Jamie O'Brien. So we've got a writer, we've got producers, it'll be a thing. I still think this is really early for a reboot. It's only been like seven years. Is our nostalgia just so that short term? I don't know. I I think it has more to do with how popular True Blood was as a show. That they're bringing it back just for another money stream basically. Right. So they can sell it. And I get that. It's just... I still think it's weird people are nostalgic for the 90s. And the 90s was way longer ago than 2013. Yeah. So, like, yikes. I, again, I don't think it's really nostalgia-based. I think it's just the popularity factor of it more so than anything. It's just a show that did amazingly well on television. Whether yeah. you're a fan or I'm a fan, which neither of us really are. You, you know my opinions about sparkly vampires. I just don't support I don't, it. I don't think this one was supposed to be sparkly. I think he was supposed to be scary, but there were so many sex scenes. I don't think so. You're like, Ooh, wow, that was really scary. Well, and, like, it takes place in part of Louisiana... And I'm not a huge fan of people doing vampires in Louisiana unless it's, like, a certain show that I've already watched. I was, so. was going to say Tread Lightly. I thought you were about to say, I don't like people from Louisiana. And I was just like, whoa. Well, I'm just saying, I've already watched a vampire show set in Louisiana. And yeah. then I tried to watch this and I was like, this is just, like, the wrong thing for me (laughs) so but that was most of the news there are a lot of lists coming out right now because it's the end of the year people are talking about the best books to buy for christmas what were the best books of the year so on and such forth what books you're looking forward to next year the lists never end and so moving out of news i actually also created my most anticipated list for 2021 releases is anyone surprised i mean i've been working on the list for a few weeks now it's just It's a lot. Well, I only included the ones that I'm actually super excited for. There are new releases that are coming out that I'm probably going to pick up, but I'm not actually excited for. And then, of course, you have the standard problem where a lot of releases that are going to happen towards the end of the year haven't been announced yet, or the title's been released, but there's no summary and no release date, stuff like that. Yeah. So I thought I would go through my list. Most of this is stuff coming out between January and June, and then a couple don't have release dates, and one is tentatively set for a date in November. 
So the first book is Enjoy the View by Sarah Morgenthaler. It is the third book in the Moose Springs, Alaska series coming out on January 19th of 2021. And this was that contemporary set in Alaska that I told you about that I really liked that you don't necessarily have to read them in order, but they kind of all go together and include side characters from the previous book as the lead in the next book. So this one includes a character that I really enjoy. He is like this big mountain man, Burly does all this outdoor work, but he's a softie on the inside. And he's getting his own sort of love story with someone who is a tourist to the area, a Hollywood starlet. And I think this could be really funny given the town's attitude towards tourists and the fact that they don't like them. Yeah. So it'll be cute. It's easy to read her stuff. I think each one of the previous books I read in less than 24 hours. So it's really cute, easy to read if you need something to break up all the fantasy or sci-fi, whatever you're reading. Or even break up like just a rough patch of reading. It's just kind of uh, an easy one to go along with. Yeah, it's a good palate cleanser because you can follow it without having to work so hard. Got it. So, and then the next one that I'm excited for, I've requested an arc. I don't know that I'm going to get it, but we'll see. It's Namesake by Adrian Young. It's the second book in the Fable duology, so it's the last book. And that is going to be coming out on March 16th. So the first book is about a girl whose pirate father drops her off on this somewhat deserted island. There are a few people on the island and she has to make her way back to him in order to get her inheritance and things kind of go to crap at the end of the first one. And this one picks up where that one left off. And I don't want to go into what this book's actually about because it gives away stuff from the first book. So if you haven't read Fable, go read that and then pick this one up next year. The third book is Rule of Wolves by Lee Bardugo. It is the second book in the Nikolai duology. So it's the last one there as well. Coming out at the end of March on March 30th. And I'm sort of nervous about this one, but I'm gonna read it and I'm excited for it. Basically, a bad guy that we thought we had defeated in one of the other series, because these are all interconnected series, has come back at the end of the first one. So I need a lot of explanation to explain why he's there, how he got there, because we thought ding dong the witch is dead and apparently that's not the case. Ding dong the cliffhanger's here. Yeah, Yeah. so... I think it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of good writing to make up for the fact that you did this at the end of the first book. So that's why I'm nervous. Yeah. It's technically the seventh book in the Grisha verse. So you had three books in the first series, two books in the second series, and now two books in the third series. And there's rumors she's currently working on a book in the Six of Crows, what will be a trilogy apparently, but... There's no date or even estimate on that. I watched a video about 2021 new releases and someone said it was going to come out in 2021. I've seen no evidence of this. Yeah. The only thing coming out from Lee Bardugo that I can tell for 2021 is Rule of Wolves. So this book. 
And another one I'm super excited for is Fugitive Telemetry by Martha Wells. This is the sixth book in the Murderbot Diaries, and it comes out at the end of April on the 27th. I really like the Murderbot Diaries. I know a lot of people think that they're way too short, and I kind of agree with that. But I plan on binge reading the first five before this one comes out, so hopefully I won't be too like, there's not enough Murderbot. I feel like regularly the discussion about Murderbot comes up when we talk about some of your favorite books for the year. Yeah, I really like sassy AI robots. Whatever you got, if it's sassy, not supposed to be this intelligent, but they are, I'll take it. Yeah. I binge read the first four this year, and then when the fifth one came out, I read it. So it's like, inject this right into my veins, I'm like ready for it. (laughs) Here, let me just uh, get the IV ready for you of Murderbot. So... This one's going to be another novella. So the first four are novellas. The fifth is a full-length book. And then the sixth is going to be another novella. I don't know how long this series is going to go on. From what I found on Goodreads, we still have a few to go. So I would imagine, based on the way you describe it to me, it's something that you probably could make last a very long time. Well, there's so much yet to explore, and that's partially due to the lack of pages but it's also to do with the writing style. So everything's kind of zoomed in on this one character and where they go. So you have a less overall world picture. Yeah. I think you could do a lot of things with that. Yeah, I was going to say, it seems like it's balancing a little bit like of an adventure series in space you know that's essentially what it is so the reality is you could pull like a star trek and stretch it out forever if you really wanted to to an extent obviously eventually you'd probably come along like a repeating timeline styles thing but you know i think as long as you include the characters that were in the first book i don't mind where we go or what we do but we need to come back to them every once in a while because they're who I've connected with the most. Yeah. And that's partially because they reappeared in one of the books, but it's also partially just they're the first people that we've interacted with as an audience. Right. And another one that I don't know how long the series is going to be because I thought the series was over, but apparently it's not. It's The Box in the Woods by Maureen Johnson. This is technically book number four of the Truly Devious series, but it's got its own arc, and it'll be coming out June 15th of 2021. Basically, it looks like our characters from the first arc of the story are going to work at a camp for the summer, which is why it's called The Box in the Woods, and I assume a murder mystery happens again because that's what this series has been about so far. I'm a little confused because I, I was reading a little bit earlier about one of like the top 10 box sets that was released this year and Truly Devious was one of them in yeah. October. So I'm kind of shocked that there's a fourth after she just released a box set of books. But Well, this is a publishing decision, not an author decision. So yeah. what happens a lot is publishers will release box sets in the middle of a series series or something when there are multiple out so that they can make more money basically it's a money-making publishing ploy it probably makes more sense to like do that before like the holidays so like i know that it got released in like late october so i guess that kind of makes sense to release them like that especially if you know there's a fourth book coming like well, like, if somebody hasn't dove into it yet, you know, it's a good way to start. Right. But, like, the Harry Potter Illustrated series, we walk by a table full of a box set every time we go to Costco. But and that like, drives me mad. There's only three. Yeah. So, are you going to do a second box set for the other four when they're all out? 
I don't know. It's very weird. But that's a publishing choice, not the author's decision. There's four illustrated copies. My brain just died because you said there were only three. Well, there are three in the box set is what I'm saying. And then you'd have to have four for the next box set or three or whatever they plan on doing. Yeah. I'm really wondering if we're going into like arc number two and doing three more books. So technically it's six books in a series with two arcs or what's going to happen there. I just hope it doesn't run into the problem that a lot of authors have, which is I want to continue the world in these stories, but then it's never ending or it's pointless. Yeah. Like, I want it to have a point and an arc and a full development of a story, but I don't want this to be a series that goes on forever. Right. Because there are series that some authors write a 15, 20, 25 book series, and I'm just not there for that. I can understand that. I think the longest series I've read is seven books. Yeah. So I can hang in for seven books. I don't know if I could do more than that. Right. Another fourth book in a series that's coming out this year, also in June, is Witch Shadow by Susan Dennard. It's the fourth book in the Witchland series, and it'll be coming out June 22nd of this year. I have trouble explaining this one because it's one of those that I binge read this series while I was stuck in bed with COVID, so my brain doesn't fully remember everything as it's happened. (laughs) So you're going to do a reread on it then? I'm definitely doing a reread. And the series is one of those things where you have to seriously pay attention while you're reading because little tiny bits of information become important later. So it's one of those, I would have to reread this anyway. Yeah. And basically, it's a fantasy series about two girls who are really close friends and this mission that they have to go on. And it kind of goes from there. I don't know a better way to describe it than that. Got it. But this one is going to have at least five books in the series. Plus there's a 0.5 novella if you want. You don't necessarily have to read it, but some people say you should. And then we get into the more wishy-washy, this may happen, this may not happen. It might be the end of the year. It might be the year after that. So the next one is untitled. So they're... Currently has no title, but it is the second Crescent City book by Sarah J. Mass. It currently has a published date for November 2nd by Bloomsbury Publishing. Mm -hmm. It's a kind of urban fantasy, and it has basically any sort of mythological creature you can come up with. Angels, werewolves, fae, vampires, demons. It's got everything. The first book is about a thousand pages long, so that makes me nervous for a second book, but that will be hopefully coming out roughly this time next year. And this one, I think you would like this series that I'm about to talk about. It is the Skyward series by Brandon Sanderson. Book number three, which is called Nowhere, is going to be coming out this year. There's no real expected publication date for this one. Sanderson updates his fans through his blog, so every once in a while he'll drop things there. So last year he had talked about hopefully releasing this in spring of 2021, but with the way publishing works, they tend to announce things roughly nine months before they're going to happen, unless it's a well-known author who is going to sell a ton of books no matter how far in advance you announce it. Right, you want it to be like fresh on the memory. So like... Stephanie Meyer's Midnight Sun 
dropped only about three months after it was announced. So she can get away with that. I think Brandon Sanderson could get away with that, but I highly doubt it's going to come out this spring like he was anticipating. I think it's probably going to be in the fall, which is when the two previous books in this series have come out. So that wouldn't be unusual in any way. But Skyward is a young adult sci-fi book about a girl named Spensa who wants to be in the pilot training program, but because her father had run away during a firefight, they don't want her because they brand her a coward and say it runs in her blood. I was going to say it's kind of based off of genetics. Like that's, it's permanently going to be who you're marked as because of your dad who ran away and fled the scene of uh, an actual battle. Yeah. And so the first book is about getting into that program and whether or not she can keep up and that sort of thing. The second book goes in a completely different direction, but I still really enjoyed it. And I have no idea what the third one's about, but I'm still going to get it. Yeah. It kind of makes sense. It sounds like it would be a series that would be up my alley, more or less. I think this would be a good book series for us to read together, but it would have to be later in the year next year because of when I expect the release date to be for that one. Got it. And I don't know if this next one is my most anticipated release, but it gives me the warm and fuzzies thinking about it, so probably... And it is The Hawthorne Legacy by Jennifer Lynn Barnes. It is the second book in the Inheritance Games series. I don't know if there's two books, three books, four books. We'll see. Right. It currently has no summary and no release date, just a tentative 2021 expected release date. It didn't even have a title till recently, so I'm very excited for this one. It left off on a little tiny bit of a cliffhanger in the first one, so we'll see where it goes from there. I'm thinking it'll probably be a September or October release date, given when the first one came out. Sounds exciting, though. And the next to last one is a book that I, I'm i excited for, I'm anticipating, but the series has kind of gone downhill from the first one for me, so I hope they turn it around with book three. It's The Righteous by Renee Audier. It is the third book in the Beautiful series. This is vampires in New Orleans in the mid to late 19th century, I believe. And I like vampire stories. I like how this first one really took its time to set the tone of the story before it even mentions that these guys are vampires. But book two took a kind of weird shift for me. And so... I think book three really has to bring it to get me super excited for book four. Yeah, so with your vampires in New Orleans, it seems like it's either hit or miss. You gotta do it right or I'm not gonna like it, apparently. Yeah. And that's kind of the weird thing for me is like, she did a good job with the first book, but the second one took this weird turn that I didn't, I didn't hate, but like I didn't really like it either. Right. But I'm excited for book three to hopefully turn it around. And that one also is just expected publication 2021. And the last book is a V. Schwab. It looks like it's going to be an adult book, possibly the first in a series or a standalone. And it is Black Tabs. It's coming out, I'm guessing, probably in the fall of next year because there's currently just an expected publication date of 2021 for it. And it's got one sentence on Goodreads that says... Starring a female assassin in a future version of New York City. 
I'm sold. You got me. You win. I'll buy it. Can I buy it now? I'll do it now. Right. So I'm excited to see that. I really hope that in the new year we can get you to read something by V.E. Schwab and decide whether or not this author is for you because I love her work so far. I've read a middle grade from her. I've read Vicious, which is probably her most popular work in my opinion. But those are all of my super excited anticipated releases for 2021. I've requested ARCs for a couple books that if I don't get then I might not read the book at all because I'm not excited enough to spend my own money on it. Right. I might go to the library if they ever open again. But I'll talk about what I've been reading. I read two and a portion of a book this past week. So I continued with, from a certain point of view, The Empire Strikes Back by various authors. It's the stories from side characters from the fifth Star Wars movie, technically. Second one to come out. I was going to say the second Star Wars movie. But it's number five in the series. Yes. So I read 16 stories and I averaged out what I gave the rating for those 16 stories and it came out at 2.83 stars. So (laughs) I'm not loving the middle stories. Yeah. And... That's really weird for me because two of them got the highest rating that I've given any of the stories so far. But then a lot of them are like 2.5. There was a 1.25. So like not my favorite by any means. But there were two that I really, really loved. One was Rendezvous Point by Jason Fry. And the other one was Amara Kell's Rules for the Pilot's Survival. Probably. By Django Wexler. And... I think I've decided that I like pilot stories because these are both pilot stories. Like they're in ships doing battle or something along those lines. So if you want to give me sci-fi pilot stories, I'll read it. See Brandon Sanderson's Skyward series. But I have about 14 stories of those left. And I'm, I'm actually having a good time reading despite what the average star rating says. Because it's Star Wars, and no matter how good or bad it is, you can't 100% hate it. Right, right. Well, I mean, I did hate that one with the 1.25. Yeah. But let's not talk about that one. I also read a Christmas book that I had gotten for free during the year and saved for this time of the year. It's called His Christmas Miracle by Danny Collins. I rated that 3.75 stars, which, again, for me, for contemporary, that's a really high rating. Yeah. And it's about this guy who just found out he was a father when his ex is killed in a car accident. He is told he has to take care of this kid he's never seen or heard of. And after a DNA test, they determine that he is the father and shall be taking care of this kid now. And so he hires someone to babysit the kid while he's trying to work from home and figure out his situation and learn how to be a dad. And she comes up with a way to sort of open the kid up by making a homemade advent calendar. Mm. And she comes up with a new thing for them to do that's related to Christmas every single day. It's a story about this like weird hodgepodge of family coming together, but also a romance between her and the dad. And it like it really sounds like a Hallmark movie. I don't know why it's took not the words one. right out of my mouth. <laughs> 
<laughs> but there was one sex scene, and normally I don't like those, but this one was done really well, and, like, it wasn't, like, closing the curtain or fading to black, but it was done where everything was less about lust and more about how much they care about each other, which I appreciated. You like the love lovemaking, not the we're having sex lovemaking. Which is most romance, but mm. this one was really good. I feel like I would read more from this author. I don't know. I'm surprised I liked it as much as I did, considering I got it for free. Yeah. And then the last thing I read was A Sky Beyond the Storm by Saba Tahir. This is the last book in the Ember and the Ashes series, and I expected to be destroyed, and I wasn't, which... I don't know if that makes me heartless because there are some really bad things that happen or if I just wasn't connected enough to the characters who do face the consequences of the whole war and battle or what. Yeah. But I rated it 4.25 stars. I think it might be the highest rated Ember book. So like I liked it. I enjoyed it. I liked the backstory for the villain and like his motivation made a lot of sense whereas sometimes they don't. And I liked seeing people's relationships and how they grew. I think one of those relationships got cut too short because they died in battle. So, like, I didn't feel as, like, heartbroken at their death as I could have if more stuff had happened with them earlier in the series. Right. But there was a really tender moment between, like, one of the main couples and... Like, they were getting ready for this battle and thinking that they're gonna both die. And, like, it's very angst-filled and, like, cute and I enjoyed it. And I don't know why I like people being broken, but apparently I do. Unhealthy relationships are good relationships no, when they're it's, angsty. It's just... I like when they both care about each other, but situations keep each other from being able to actually be with each other. Gotcha. But this isn't all about romance. There is a lot of fantasy and war aspects and a lot about learning about who you are as a person when it comes down to it and sort of the nitty gritty of war. Yeah. Sounds like it would be a good series. I just don't know that it would be for me. I'm not a big... There is a little more romance than I think you would like lovey-dovey romance stuff is not really up my alley so much. I also don't know if you'd like the fantasy system because it's based on Jin, and so it's less of just like this is how the world works and more like the reason this happens is because of this one species of person or whatever. I actually don't think I'd have that big of a problem with that because like Jin and genie based stuff is something I've always been kind of interested in so like I, I think I actually would enjoy that part believe it or not but you know, obviously one day I'll read it and I'll understand either what you mean or, or well, you'll be wrong one or the other, I guess. I'm always open to trying new things series-wise out. Like, I'm ready to start reading other things, to say the least, than Harry Potter. We'll have to make you a list. Yeah. And then I thought I would do a real quick rundown of what I plan on reading for the rest of the year, since we're not going to be doing another one of these until the new year. This is our last episode for the year, so... Enjoy it while it lasts. So I'm going to finish From a Certain Point of View by various authors. I have 14 left, so I'm hoping to read it two stories a day. Hopefully the best stories were saved for last. So this is going to be like the award segment from the last episode for me then? A little. Okay. I'm also going to read a 
bunch of Christmas books, the first of which is The Christmas Countdown by Donna Ashcroft. Basically, a girl gets her heart broken. She moves to live with her aunt just for the holiday season. And so the aunt makes a holiday calendar for her and she has to do all the things on the calendar and there's a romance in there somewhere. Similar to that one Christmas one I read last week. Do you think the aunt is trying to set her up with somebody and is just like... Probably, knowing the way these these characters are. are. These things are somehow all going to overlap with another calendar I made for some boy that I want you to date. I don't think it would be that, but yeah. And then I plan on rereading In a Holidays by Christina Lauren, Groundhog's Day, Christmas, There's Romance. I've oh, talked about this book so much. Far too many times. One of my favorites of the year. Yeah. But I plan on rereading it since I'm so far ahead on my reading goal for the year. And then the last Christmas one is going to be Christmas Gifts Collection by Alina Atkin. It's three stories bound together that are very Christmassy and they're each story about 100 pages, so I'm figuring I can do one story a day or whatever. And they are all romance, in case you were wondering. So I don't want to read them. Got it. I think you also wouldn't want to read it because it's Christmas and that's not your favorite. I like Christmas. I just, retail has ruined me yeah. uh, for Christmas in a lot of ways. Again, like, I, I love the idea of Christmas, and as a kid growing up, I loved Christmas. But as an adult, it's just like, ugh. Like, One I of these days... It. We're going to get you in the Christmas spirit and it'll be like a Hallmark movie. Eh, I don't know if it'll ever get that cheesy. And then the last one I'm going to read, I'm going to try to read the week after Christmas, right before the new year. It's Kisses and Croissants by Anne Sophia Johano. And this one is an arc that I have from Ned Galley that is a girl going to a ballet school in Paris and she finds a romance there with a boy. And I'm sure she has to choose between, like, the boy or ballet or something like that. I was going to say, why is it called Kisses and Croissants if it's a ballet book? Well, it's happening in Paris, so there's the croissants, and Kisses is going to be the romance. Oh, got so. it. I feel like there's better title options out there for that. I mean, it's pretty fitting with the genre yeah. that it's in. I mean, I've heard of such titles before that I'm not Could you, like, plie and pastries? I'm sorry. Yeah, you could. You definitely could. But that leaves us with our final section, which is recapping our feelings on the adaptation of Deathly Hollows Part 2. I think this is going to follow a lot of the previous versions of this because, I don't know, my overall emotion for that is oof. Yeah. And I feel like if I just watched the movies and never read the books, I would be over the moon with how the movies worked out. I still feel like with this one, though, there were things that, not even, like, taking stuff from the book at all, but they just didn't seem to make sense sometimes for even the movie. Like, some of the things were just weird. Yeah. Like, had I just watched the movie outright, I'd have been like, this just doesn't seem like the timing is right for certain things, like, that were happening. So, like... Like what? Too much, really, to, like, go into detail. Honestly, it... It just seemed like the timing was off for a lot of stuff. Like, just the arrival into even, like, Hogsmeade seemed just weird. Mm-hmm. The pace um, there seemed very odd. Like, everything after that was, the timing just seemed to be off. Starting with our opening, we come to the Shell Cottage. And I'm glad he had these conversations as we had previously discussed you were worried that they weren't going to in the movie. Yeah, I'd be irate if they didn't. So, I'm glad they had them i just everything happened so quickly compared to how it happened in the book 
and so wrong compared to what happened in the book. Like, right. Ollivander's completely was like, you got maybe 2% of that right. Like, it's just, I don't know. I, well, I was let down. Well, he wasn't supposed to know about the Deathly Hollows, and right. he was just supposed to know about the Death Stick and, like, the, Elder Wand, the Unbeatable yeah. Wand. Right. But they hadn't included enough lead up to just like the lore about the wand itself right. for it to have happened in a way that made sense to just the movie universe. And so they had to play that off as him knowing about all the Deathly Hollows. And I miss a lot of the world building stuff that happened with Shell Cottage. Like, the relationship with Bill and Fleur, building that, and having to hide everything from them, as well as them sort of being, like, this family on the run, almost, like, this mishmash of characters all together hiding out. And then it bothered me that they didn't do enough with Lupin's storyline in this book. Because you don't know about Teddy at all, and... Let's be honest, all the movies, you get just such a minuscule amount of Lupin except for the one in Prisoner, and that's it. Because you kind of have to. Yeah. And and it, if you didn't include him in that, I feel like it's the same situation where you meet Bill in this one. It's just like, it's so random. You right. Know? And, like, I think that's what makes his death in the movie, not nearly as heartbreaking. Right. And I think that was something I was going to come around to. The the deaths in this movie, I I feel like the only reason they were emotional is because I've read the book. Right. Yeah. Like, if, you if I just watched that. them, if I just watched the movie, I would have been like, eh, like another person died. No kidding. It's a battle. Ooh. Yeah. Well, you, know? you told me that when it came to Fred's death yeah. because they didn't show it. They just showed the family reacting. And you told me that the only thing that made you emotional about it was having read the book. Right. And I said, for me, part of the thing that made me emotional was thinking about the actors who are actually twins having to pretend that one of them died and the other one lived. Like, they have talked about in an interview before having to film that part and how that was like their least favorite day on set. I just, I don't agree that that should be that complicated because they're actors. But I guess imagining your brother dying is probably pretty miserable. But at the same time, it's like, you know, he's not actually dead. So like, why is it bothering you that much? Well, when you're acting, it's You try more... to throw yourself into the character. I get it. But a lot of the stuff early on that I really didn't like was the... A sort of weird relationship between Harry, Ron, Hermione, and Griphook. Because, you know, that interview was not right per the book. And then just as you go, he's constantly being, like, underhanded. And I think that's not necessarily the way he was in the book as they were leading up to breaking into Gringotts and the actual break-in at Gringotts. The only time they really see him turn on them is them hearing him yell that there are thieves in the vault and running away with a sword. Yeah, and like, so you kind of lose the sneakiness of it I guess is what you're aiming more for. Like, he's kind of always slowly undermining them a little bit, like, and and you see a little bit of that but in the book, but in the movie you see none of it. It just, it just happens immediately, I guess? Is that it? Or? No. Okay. In the movie, it makes him seem very underhanded, like he's planning on stabbing them in the back the whole time, whereas... Yeah, that's probably what's going to happen in the book, but, like, you don't expect it in the book until it actually happens. I was going to say the other way around. I felt like it... 
I always kind of felt like I don't trust him, but I feel like that's just because of like the conversation Harry and Bill had where it was just immediately like, I'm like, this dude is going to stab you in the back. And so, like, it wasn't that shocking for me in the book, I guess. That's not what I'm saying. Okay. I'm saying that, yeah, you have this undertone the whole time of I can't trust this guy, but then when it actually happens, that's the only time he does anything underhanded. Yeah. Whereas the whole time leading up to that point in the movie, you see him doing things that are very obviously leading up to this point. Yeah. Whereas in the book, it's just a feeling and something you expect, but don't actually see him do anything. I think they did a good job with the thieves' downfall, that waterfall that takes away all concealment. Yeah. But otherwise, I really don't like the Gringotts scenes, especially since you're missing Travers in the first place. You're missing Travers, you're missing the all the Imperious curses. You get one of them, you know, but... That's really about it. Um, so I don't know. I, I struggled with that scene. I think even with you, I was just like, uh, this is the thing that's happening, but there's a lot of things missing, you know, because Hermione was immediately tested when Travers arrived versus like by the time she got to the bank, it seemed like that's where her first true test of being Bellatrix was, you know, prior to that, it was just the oops. I said hello nicely. Like right. that, that's not being tested. That's just like you realize, oh, I need to be a little more rude. And just the way that they did Gringotts, I didn't enjoy. And, like, it's little things that were wrong. And then the way that Hermione catches them when they come out of the cart, because that doesn't happen in the book. Yeah. It was harder to see the dragon's abuse this time than it was to read it. And, like, I know it's not a real character it's not a real animal that's been abused, but right. it was harder to watch than I expected. And I've only seen this movie like once or twice. I think, though, it has a lot to do with, again, your connection to the book, to the movie. Because, like, in the movie itself, all they do is shake the what are they, clinkers. Clankers. Clankers. And if you don't know what they are in the book, then you really don't understand it beyond the fact that Grip Hook's like, we've trained them to be afraid of this because they assume pain. And like, if you didn't clarify that, you'd just be like, okay, the dragon doesn't like noises. <laughs> like, it's definitely more described in depth in the book. And I think that's why it really connects with a stronger point with you in the movie. Because you're like, I know why, like more, more as to like the background as to why the dragon doesn't like this. And then in the movie, you're just like, you're putting all that thought right into the front of it, maybe? Maybe. Because that's, that's what got me, at least. I don't know. And then when you're in the vault, I think they do a good job of the Jimino curse and other things. It just, it all happens so fast. And in the book, it feels slower paced than that. And I think it's like you said, with the timing just feeling weird. The only thing that was weird about... I think that scene was the fact that it wasn't actually burning them. It just seemed like it was just replicating. Yeah. It was more of a drowning fear than drowning and burning. Yeah. And then they get on the dragon and Harry has all those visions about Voldemort finding out about the Horcrux. Yeah. And that was all fine. Like, it wasn't stellar, but it wasn't a bad adaptation of those scenes. Yeah. I wasn't a huge fan of when they apparate into Hogsmeade. Like, they did have the caterwauling charm, but they didn't try to disapparate or have the Dementor or any of that stuff. Yeah, which takes a lot of the confusion out of things, but at the same time, it it allowed for, like, Aberforth to be a little bit more sneaky because, like, he didn't have to, like, really 
defend them that much because it wasn't like, yeah, we saw a stag. Right. You yeah. know. Like, he didn't no. have a real confrontation there. Right. And then you have Aberforth very vaguely explaining the whole situation between Dumbledore's and their sister and all of that stuff. I'm kind of glad that was kept out of the movie. And, and the only reason being is they really didn't cover a lot of the stuff previously right. in the movies. So, like, I understand why they didn't make it that long. It's a continuity thing that I completely understand. But if I was just watching this, I wouldn't be impacted as strongly with him and everything in that scene. Because there's not even mention that that's his sister in the movie. Like, it's just a painting. I think Hermione mentions that it's Ariana Dumbledore. Yeah. So, like, you can infer that yeah. it's his sister. Right. I don't know. I'm not a huge fan of this scene, but, like, they didn't technically do enough wrong to hate it. Yeah, I feel like they, they kept it shorthand for sure, and they left out a lot of detail that the book would have given you, but, again, it, it kind of circles back around that, like, the history between Dumbledore and Aberforth and Ariana was kept to literally a minimal in every other previous movie. So, like, I understand the creativity argument behind it. It's like, you don't need to include it if there wasn't anything to proceed why he right. felt like he needed to tell you the actual story. Well, it's like we've been saying for a lot of the later books, it's like, I can understand why it was left out because it wasn't brought up in the other movies. Right. But it's technically wrong. Yeah. And they take the passageway into Hogwarts and, meh, like... It's kind of whatever for me. I think the timeline from here gets really wacky and things get put out of place. Everything's out of place. Almost yeah. to a T. It's just like when he arrives, he's supposed to go down to the common room. You uh, keep saying Ravenclaw. down, but the Ravenclaw common room's in a tower. Right. But supposed to, that's just a Midwest thing. I feel like I'm going down to San Diego when I go to visit or I'm going down to Chicago when I go to visit one really that's up. It's like north. But yeah, they go to the common room for Ravenclaw. Literally, they don't do that. Like, it's just crazy to me. Instead, everyone's already evacuating. They've already had the Snape confrontation. And you don't get to see the Ravenclaw common room, which I personally hate. The Snape confrontation where it takes place in a completely different side of the castle. With a lot more eyewitnesses. Yeah. A lot more of Snape being confronted by Harry versus Snape confronting McGonagall and then getting driven out by the other teachers, which I think makes a lot more sense. Yeah. And you lose the Caros because the Caros really haven't been mentioned aside from Neville saying that they're the bad ones now. Well, they were there, but they immediately were like just basically put into shame like an instant after Minerva starts cracking the whip basically on everybody. And you lose the part in the common room where they get tied up. Yeah. And Which I would have thoroughly enjoyed in the movie. Right. Setting, it would have like. been like a decent, not super action-y, but kind of action-y scene. Right. As well, too, that's technically how Voldemort finds out he's even at Hogwarts. So, like, right. the timeline there, I think that was one of the about four or five things that really just, like, pushed my buttons. Where I was just like, wow, how did he know he was even there? Right. Because and- they, they didn't find him in Hogsmeade. And there's really no reason otherwise for him to already be there. And it just made no sense. Like, no Death Eater would have called Voldemort just to say, we think he's at Hogsmeade, but we haven't caught him. But that's the way the movie made it seem. Right. But Mm -hmm. we do have a moment that I kind of love, even though it's wrong and it's not in the book. And you have Luna running after Harry. 
and Harry's not listening, she kind of just yells at him, like, Harry Potter, you listen to me right now. Yeah. I'm like, yes, Luna, go off. Yeah, you got a little bit of character development where instead of the moment in the Ravenclaw common room or trying to get into it, you really get to see how like intelligent Luna is. You see more of a backbone, strong, empowered Luna, which yeah. is definitely different, but... And she's the one that convinces Harry to speak with Helena Ravenclaw or the Grey Lady. And, like, I think it makes sense that she would be the one to think outside the box enough to say, yeah, no one alive has seen it, but what about dead people? Because ghosts. And so that makes sense, but at the same time, inaccurate. Yeah, the timeline is all jacked up. Again, and, and even how... The process breaks down. The evacuation's wrong, yep. and, like, you don't see Percy coming in and having his sort of moment of redemption. Well, when you have the Slytherins taken down to just the dungeon instead of to actually evacuate. evacuate. <laughs> and, like, I have a problem with that in the books anyway, but, like, that just makes it worse. Yeah. Here we go into Blaze being in the, the room of requirement. Before that. Yeah. You actually see the part where Ron and Hermione go down to the Chamber of Secrets to get the Basilisk Fangs. Yeah. And for some reason, after she stabs the cup, they're just kissing. Yeah. And like... So there's no time for that right now. I know you guys kiss in the books, but like this doesn't really fit. <laughs> You don't have Ron trying to free the house elves. And then, like you said, Blaze is the one who goes with Goyle and Draco into the Room of Requirement. Right. And that's wrong. But this was something that had less to do with not having the right people and more to do with they couldn't get the actor for the movie for some reason. I remember that. And so... Like, I understand you make whatever you can work when you can't get the actor you need. Yeah, you gotta substitute somewhere. And they did an okay scene with the fiend fire. I didn't think there was anything too bad there. I mean, it wasn't a great part of the movie, but... It was an interesting scene, nonetheless. Goyle falling into the fire instead of basically already... Like, they get him out in the book, don't they? And he's just dead because he's already been... On fire well, or... Crab is the one who dies in the book. Yeah. yeah. And in the movie, it ends up being Goyle and not Blaze. Yeah. Who took Crab's spot. But no, in the book, he actually is in the Room of Requirement when they fly out. Ah. And then when they come out of the Room of Requirement, Harry's got the diadem, but it's fine. Yeah. And so he has to then take care of the Horcrux, which is fine because they have Basilisk fangs, but... I mean, the whole point of the fiend fire scene was that it was going to destroy the Horcrux. Because it's dark enough magic to do that. But I guess they didn't want to take a line or two to explain fiend fire to the audience. Well, in fairness, the book doesn't do a very good job at that other than giving you that like one-liner from Hermione going, well, it's dark enough magic to destroy it, so that makes sense. Well, she also had a line about, I would never do that. Yeah. Because you can't control it. Yeah. So, like, I feel like you throw in those lines to Hermione and you're done. Well, and you're letting Hermione look very intelligent again, you know, in the book, which almost the whole last book was, was Hermione being like, guys, duh, you know, so we talked about that when we wrapped up the book, so. And then 
like you mentioned, and we both kind of really disliked this, was instead of Harry going into the Shrieking Shack, because that's where Voldemort is talking to Lucius Malfoy, it's a boathouse that we've never seen before, ever. Like, we know it exists, obviously. Most likely. Because it's just... They have those boats for first years at the beginning of each school year. So, I mean, they obviously have to put them somewhere. Yeah. But we've never seen it before in the books or the movies. And they do an okay job between Lucius and Voldemort. And they do an okay job with Voldemort and Snape. I just didn't feel as afraid as I felt I should have. Yeah. Because, like... It felt like in the book, Snape had this, like, sense of doom and, like, realization that Voldemort was about to kill him. And I didn't feel that with the movie. Yeah. And I don't know if it was, like, stylistic choices or music or what that threw that off for me, but I didn't like it. All of the above. I think the music was a little strange. I think the location definitely was not as grim or as dark because, like, again, that shack or, well, the the boathouse is meant to be like a happy moment. It's supposed to be when kids are coming to Hogwarts for the first time. It just didn't seem nearly as dark and grungy and creepy as like the Shrieking Shack would have looked. I think that's where my problem really lied with it. Honestly, I think that was the biggest issue I had. Well, the Shrieking Shack is a place where everyone thinks it's cursed. And you've got our inside knowledge, which is it's really Lupin's hideout when he was at Hogwarts dealing with the full moon and so like there's a lot of like pain and angst and like all this stuff built up into the shrieking shack whereas this boathouse is like you said a part of hogwarts so it's like nothing scary or weird or wrong here the way it is at the shrieking shack as well too it kind of forces you to think that the whole time voldemort was like closer to the action than he really was like if you actually read the book it's like basically he sent his peons to do the fighting and and, he just and he kind of sat back and watched it all happen which you get a little bit of a scene of in the movie when, like, the attack begins on the castle. But after that, it's just like, okay, well, he's on the campus of Hogwarts now. Like, I don't, I just, my brain didn't like that so much. Right, right. I think it made Voldemort seem braver than he really kind of was. Yeah, no, I think he's very much a coward who's so afraid of death. So why would he walk in to Hogwarts when a battle is happening? Right. And... We get to the part where Snape's memories get leaked out of him, and I think they did a very bad job of the CGI and stuff there, but that's very minimal. I didn't hate it. Again, I feel like the adaptation from the book was god-awful, but if you hadn't read the books, you kind of got a grasp that at least Snape had feelings for Lily. Yeah. I don't think they did a very good job at, like, again, if you hadn't read the books or seen all the movies and maybe you just came in and saw the last two Deathly Hallows movies, you have no idea who this Lily Potter person is. Like, you don't well, have a clue. not even that for me. I think in the memories, the main issue I have is everything looks and feels so one-sided that just Snape always loved Lily and, like, you get some of that in the book, but in the book you also get where they're friends and, like, they're close to each other and then it sort of teeters off to where she moves past him, but he's still stuck on her. Yeah. But you really don't get that in the movie. It just looks one-sided. Yeah. I agree except, with that. except for that one scene where they're by the lake talking about Hogwarts and muggles and stuff. Yeah. Again, I think it was good enough for the movie, but not 
enough information necessarily. Because, like, even if they had gone into a couple more scenes in the movie, I feel like it would have been okay. Right, yeah. I think you needed a little more depth there to get the audience to feel it, the way it comes across in the book. Yeah, because in the book, like, at a certain point, like, you feel bad for Snape and then immediately don't feel bad for him because of actions that he does where you see her starting to fall for Harry's dad and you kind of see the falling apart between the two of them, but, like... You still see where he's trying to look out for her as well, which, again, kind of brings you back to reality that, like, Snape's really not that bad of a guy. He just was with the wrong people at the wrong time, I think. Like, a lot of it has to do with the fact that he was in Slytherin House, and he didn't really click with the popular people in the school, and that kind of steered him a little bit astray, too. Well, we're not getting... So all that Snape nonsense We're not again. getting back into all yeah. the Snape stuff because we're just going to disagree about him. But yeah. I do miss the part where you see him doing his job for the Order yeah. and doing it well enough that no one knows what side he's on. Yeah. And so... You don't get the double agent feeling. Yeah, you miss all of that, which I think is too... It's too bad because I don't like Snape and I feel like they did him dirty and like... That says a lot. It also finally shows us that Harry has been raised to die. And then it does this thing that I absolutely hate. And I think you know what it is because you absolutely hated it too. Where Harry tells Ron Hermione. And um, that pissed me off so much. Because in the book, Harry's afraid to see anybody that he knows because he's afraid that they'll persuade him to not do it i think character development wise they made him seem a lot braver and stronger than he really was in the book in the book like he was even nervous about telling like coming out from underneath the invisibility cloak to tell neville about nagini right so it's just like i think in the book he was much more a 17 year old kid going off to die and in the movie you didn't get the vulnerability there no you you got the i'm brave and i'm harry potter and i'm gonna save the day and that's it and i think that's wrong right and then harry goes off to die in the forest and you have that weird scene where he's dead but not dead and having that conversation with dumbledore and it was so much shorter than it was in the book It also bothered me that he just magically figured out where they were instead of following back the two Death Eaters that were supposed to be looking for him. I'm like, how did you know where they were? Like, the idea is that they were hidden in close enough proximity to be able to still attack again. I don't know. That just seemed weird to me. But yeah, that scene with Dumbledore was, like, I don't know. It it did okay. Like, Well, the thing more more than anything that got to me was Harry sees the bit of Voldemort in him that is dying. Yeah. And, like, it's kind of gross. And, like, it's supposed to be gross and it's supposed to be this unseemly thing, but it's supposed to be, like, in the far corner. Like, you can hear it, but you don't see it and you can feel bad for it or whatever. Yeah, it's, like, described as, like, as a baby dying in, in the book, roughly, whereas in the movie... You literally are forced to see, like, everything. Like Yeah, and I, I really didn't like that. I thought it for movie effect, it was good just because I'm a movie nut. But the book purposely avoids going too descriptive on it. And it's like, it's not necessary. It was just more of something to be like, look, it's really dying. You know, I think that was really the director's take on it anyways. 
And I think they did a good job with Harry coming back into his body, Voldemort having fallen down, and the whole thing with Narcissa. Like, there's really not much to complain about there for me. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think the Narcissa scene was pretty much spot on. There wasn't anything too crazy. And you can definitely see that Voldemort was trying to recover from something when he came back to. The only weird part about that scene, I think, was when he asked Hagrid to carry him. You didn't know Hagrid was even there. Right, yeah. He just was there all of a sudden. Like, you're like, oh, okay. Even if they had just taken one little clip of him... In the battle. Well, not even in the battle, just him in the forest being tied up and seeing Harry come in. Yeah. It would have helped. And then when Voldemort is demanding surrender and Draco's parents call for Draco to come over. Yeah. That hug was the weirdest thing I've ever seen in my life between Draco and Voldemort. Yeah. And like, it was unscripted. So like... Draco's reaction was, like, Tom Felton's actual reaction during the filming. Yeah. But, like, so awkward and so weird. And, like, Voldemort's probably someone who's never hugged anyone a day in his life. So, like, that was completely out of character. I I think it was more to try to win over the people that were still in Hogwarts, necessarily. Like, look, I'm not that bad at I hug children. Well, I welcome people back with open arms. Right. Is the message. Even if they've done me wrong, right. I think the Neville scene was okay. Like, my issue, I think, more so than anything, was that it seemed like the curses that he was using to shut up the crowd, basically, were actually working versus not, which... You do, in the movie, miss a lot of, like, the theory of magic and, like, the side Harry took, which is the side of love and light and all of this, versus you've got the side of the Death Eaters who are all about dark magic and evil and all this other stuff. Right. And you miss, like, a lot of, like, the wand theory that comes into play in a couple scenes from this and... Like, the nitty-gritty of understanding this world and this magic system just isn't in the movies. So, like, here it's especially missing. And my problem with the Neville killing Nagini scene is more to do with it looking like Ron, Hermione are trying to get to the snake and then Neville just happens to be the one that kills it. Because it seems so much more purposeful in the book. Yeah. Let's clarify, everything after the Neville scene where the hat gives him the sword is wrong. Right. Everything after that is 100% wrong. Shy of who kills who, and that's it. Yeah. Like, the fighting scene, technically, Bellatrix is supposed to be fighting three students, and she's just fighting Ginny, which... How bad of a witch is Ginny? Like... Come on. Like, you made it seem like three children who like haven't even finished their education in magic like i could see that argument being like maybe three of them together could possibly fight off somebody who's experienced as bellatrix is especially in the dark arts yeah. right and then to just see Ginny alone fighting her yeah and it's just like um no that that no Ginny's good at magic but like she's not that good right you know to be fighting off somebody as experienced as bellatrix lestrange and i think that it was good that they included the part where Molly interrupts that fight and takes out Bellatrix because... Oh, it had to exist because fans would have rioted if it didn't happen. Right. I know I would have been one of the people rioting about it. And I think the scene was good and like in the book it seems like it's down to the last two at that point in time. You're not really having any fighting going on beyond right. them. Whereas in the movie 
it's like all out war everywhere around them. The one that I really have a problem with more than anything else that happens in this movie or any other movie is the confrontation between Harry and Voldemort because you have all this magic that no one's ever seen before. It's never happened. It doesn't really exist in this world. It's just for cinematic effect. And then Harry takes down Voldemort by grabbing onto him and throwing both of them off a tower, which is just asking to die. And then they have the final battle with the wands and then Voldemort disintegrates, which is whole, like completely not the point. (laughs) The point of Voldemort's death is that it is a human death. Like, yeah, he's been the big bad for so many effing years and it's so horrible and everything. But in the end, he was just a man yeah, who died a maybe magical death because he died because of a killing curse. But his body's still supposed to be he there. He still honestly. is supposed to have a body that's just a regular human body. Yeah. And so well, it completely invalidates the whole point. Well, the same thing happened to Bellatrix, too. Like when she died, she turned into just particles basically and I I, I I like it again as a movie i just think the whole theory of everything else makes me want to just shake whoever it is that created it like well i mean by doing that with voldemort's body you're completely taking away the whole point of everything everyone's gone through at this point yeah and like i have a real big problem with that yeah i can understand that And then after the battle, Harry's explaining everything to Ron and Hermione, but they were supposed to know this information from Harry talking to Riddle while they're having their, like, circling around each other moment. Yeah. And he breaks the Elder Wand, which is so wrong, and doesn't fix his own wand, which he's supposed to, and throws the pieces of the Elder Wand over the bridge. And it's like, what are you doing, Harry, honey? No. You're supposed to fix your things first and then do away with the wand. You're not supposed to break it. But no. You're, you're supposed to rebury it with Dumbledore. What's really irritating to me about the Dumbledore thing was in the movie, it made it look like he kindly removed everything instead of blowing it up like he was supposed to, like when it comes to Voldemort, obviously. And that's how he flashback. took the wand. Yeah. 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 That scene was just... It was more of a desecration of a grave than what they show in the movie. Which I think is more of, like, a sensitivity thing that they didn't want to show it. And I can kind of excuse it. But, like, that's not Voldemort's character. Yeah, he's supposed to be bad, bad Leroy Brown. It's just... Overall, I think as a movie, it was okay. The ending just got so muddied up that, like, it... Even as a movie, you're just like, wow, this is exciting. There's action. But what was the point of all of it? Right, yeah. You know, the only point you really got out of it was the fact that the bad guy died. Mm -hmm. End of the climax, you know, or end of the movie series. It's just... It really (sighs) has stripped away a lot of the themes and the elements that make this such an important, like, series to people. Yeah. And so it's hard to discuss the movie and not just point out every single tiny thing that's wrong with it and absolutely hate on it. Right. Because of that... As a movie, these are okay movies. They do have some continuity errors due to some things that they removed and then realized they have to fix and put back in, like Bill. But as a whole, I don't know that these are the worst adaptations I've ever seen. 
Right. It's just, this is a series that has been so close to my heart since I was a child that I don't know that I could watch them and not have a problem with them. Yeah. But I'm excited to see what we get you into reading next and what sort of adaptations we can get into. Because there's a whole wide world for you to read now that you finally read Harry Potter. Yeah. And I don't know that I'm ready to do immediately like book to television or movie adaptation right away. Like I feel like I should probably focus on some of the other like major books in the YA world that people yeah. really like so that like I can get a better grasp of different authors and things like that. Yeah. Um, I do eventually want you to read The Old Guard and us watch The Old Guard because I think there are significant differences. Yeah. But I also think that the movie is better than the comic. So I do want to discuss that with you one day. Yeah. But otherwise, guys, we really appreciate you hanging around for our first season. It's pretty much wrapping up right now. So, And we're going to have season two start up in January when we get back from the new year. And hopefully we'll have a lot of fun new creative ideas on the docket for you instead of the same old, same old per se. Instead of always Harry Potter. Yeah, all the time. We really appreciate you giving us the time that you have listening to the episodes that we've put out so far this year. And we're hoping to start 2021 on a little better note than 2020. So Not um, even going to predict anything about 2021. Whatever happens is whatever happens. No more good vibes, nothing. All I'm saying is we're at rock bottom now. All there can be is an upward motion, hopefully. And we hope you guys are along the ride with us for that. So we'll catch you next year. It's so hard for me to not say next week. But we'll catch you guys next year on a sports episode to start it all off again. Make sure you guys are staying in touch with us on social media. We'll still be keeping up with that during our break. And we hope you guys have a happy and safe holidays yeah and keep reading we'll talk to you next time all right bye guys bye